Uh, welcome everyone uh, to GM 901. This will be the ninth one in the session here. We're going to have to switch to O2s or something here for the next set. Uh, I think there's a few more scheduled, but tonight we're going to be talking about immersion, creating immersion, how we can develop immersion in our games. Uh, just as a reminder, if you want to post some questions, you can go into the GM901 questions channel and put them in there. Uh, slow mode is on because that's mainly for kind of posting questions for the panel. And I will kind of shuffle and combine and rearrange and ask our uh, panelists if there's anything you want to chat about, post fun memes. Uh, Josh is Ed Sheeran, so that's always fun. I can go in seminar chat. Oh, my God. Uh, and other than that, I think we are going to uh, just do a quick intro of folks. So we have three panelists tonight, uh, Michelle, Devin, and Josh. And I think in that order, if you can just let us know uh, how long you have been GMing, DMing, etc., and what your favorite type of immersion tool is. We'll get to what those are soon, but what's your favorite type? Let's start with Michelle. So I've been gaming, I started gaming around the time of the U.S. Civil War, I think. Um, <laughs> thereabouts. Um, I've DMed for decades. Um my favorite immersion, actually, believe it or not, I think my favorite immer my favorite immersion actually is the story itself, um, particularly how well scripted and how the very similitude of the story. I'll explain a bit. I think that um, knowing your subject and being able to fill in details to me provides the best immersion as far as I, I mean, I mean, everything else is good. But to me, that's probably the most important part. All right, let's move on to uh, Devin. How long you been GMing, DMing, and what's your favorite immersion tool? Uh, I have been DMing since I was 11, so I, I'd rather not disclose exactly how long, but uh, a very, very long time. <laughs> um, my favorite tool, I think, it's hard to say because I... I like to fiddle around with a bunch of them, but I think I would have to say it's handouts. Um, I, I've gone quite above and beyond for a lot of the handouts that I've made, uh, and I think that's the, the stuff I really enjoy. The problem is it's also one of the most time-consuming ones. Okay, great. And uh, Josh, last but certainly not least. So I would say I've been DMing for about 20 years, about. Um going a little bit longer on that but uh my favorite is definitely music um i love music using it at the right time or like i guess it depends on the type of game so like if you're playing a game from the 20s you might play music from the 20s or like just even ambient music to just kind of build that just to have that sort of um feeling but uh but i've really i've actually done like i would say music is the thing that i've done the most but i've i've done a little bit of everything and at some point i want to kind of go through just like some ideas for all five senses tonight and how to sort of amplify your game to that um but i would say for me it's it's definitely music and then probably handouts awesome great all right so uh michelle's already kind of jumped in on this so i'm going to hand it right back to him um, but uh, I want to know what each of you kind of define as immersion. How do you know you've achieved immersion? What is what is that to each of you? Uh, let's start with Michelle. Well, to me, immersion means that you're living the uh, the game, so that you're experiencing the game 
in your imagination as though you were there. That's, to me, the best kind of immersion. Um, I've had games where people actually went home and dreamt about it and you know, felt like they really lived it. Uh, I've been in a few games like that myself, and I think they're you know, something to really remember when you're involved enough that it, it's like a, not just like a movie where you're watching, but like a, almost like you're there. Cool. And uh, let's switch up a bit. Josh, what do you what do you define as immersion, and what uh, how, how do you know you've kind of gotten there? So immersion can mean a lot of different things. So I agree with Michelle. It, it doesn't. You could just do it super punk rock and not have to do anything too much if you just like really have the right people and the right story. But every once in a while, you can really swing for the fences and just um, go above and beyond to to build that next level kind of experience for players. Maybe when it's like really big or like a big event or something like that. Um, I would be wary of using that too frequently. Um, but I think, I think the immersion to, to me is uh, how, you know, when you, when you sort of reach that immersion point is, I guess you just gotta have to vibe it out with your players. You just need to sort of know, uh, um, everybody is like really tuned in, I guess, for lack of a better term, in the zone. And you can just know when you've really hit that, right? Awesome. awesome. And uh, Devin, how about yourself? Yeah, when uh, when they stop saying, my character does this, and instead they just say, I do this, that's how you know you've really got the point. Awesome. That's a that, that's such a great way of describing it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, another way you can you can kind of look at it is when because when you're playing these games, you tend to trail off into various little tangents constantly. Um, somebody says a remark, and that reminds you of this thing or this movie, or hey, did you see that film? Yada. And when that's going on, that's usually at the start, and then when that stops, that means everybody is fully immersed and they're one hundred percent into what's happening. I, my favorite thing is the players leaning in, not knowing that they're doing it, but like you can tell, and this is obviously not the best in a situation for social distancing and stuff like that. But when you're all around the table and everybody's sort of just like leaned in and super into their characters and like just tuned right in, it's such a, it's such a great thing. You know, you've hit it at that point. Great. So that's, that's, uh, that's a good kind of, you know, best best case once they're in it they're they're kind of in their characters they're embodying that they're really experiencing the world um what about the flip side of that to, to kind of give the other side what are what are common mistakes you've seen gms make that you've made that break that immersion maybe even things that we don't really realize that we're doing uh let's toss this to Devin first um, I mean, it does kind of depend on the game you're playing, uh, what kind of a, a style or a genre that you're going for. Because in some games, even the hint of metagame will, will break everyone's immersion, whereas other times it's, it's easy to go in and out of it. It just kind of depends on what you're doing. Um, but some of the more, I guess, prevalent stuff that you could accidentally do could be something like if you're not being detailed enough in what you're saying and nobody really has an understanding of the geometry or of the where everything is 
uh, that can really pull someone out of their immersion because they actually they, they don't know what's going on. It's um, referred to as talking head syndrome. It's all, all people can imagine. It's a bunch of floating head or floating heads, a bunch of floating heads just talking because they don't know where they are, what things look like. Um, even if you just say and you arrive at the castle, you know, take a little, take a few minutes, just kind of go into detail about what that castle looks like to give them a picture in their head. And if you're doing something in a specific room and it's important where everybody is, then having something to actually detail that information, even if you're just doing a rough sketch on graph paper or something, to just give everybody an idea of where everything is. Because when nobody knows where anything is, it's really hard to remain invested because you just don't know what's going on. Okay, great. Um, and uh, Josh, let's go to you. Yeah, so... Um... And this, you know, immersion is a buy-in. It's not just on the GM. Everybody needs to be sort of in the right mindset. I'd say cell phones is a great way to, uh, cell phones at the table is a great way to like break immersion when somebody's kind of fooling around with their phone the whole time. Um, GMs who, there needs to be a lightness to everything, but sometimes when it's just too much, it's too many non sequiturs, taking people out of it, being silly, um, and just like not, kind of staying on tune every once in a while it's fun to break that but you really need to kind of it's it's not a one and done thing you can't say i'm gonna say this and now i've created immersion it's like this ongoing process that you always have to kind of be hitting 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 and being sure that you're kind of keeping people engaged and i think that's the most important thing you need to be careful to not fall out of that because it's really easy to break that immersion awesome and uh, and Michelle, what do you what do you uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, what breaks immersion? Um, I agree with a lot of what was said before. Um, cell phones, I think, is one of my pet peeves. I won't let people, you know, play on a cell phone or text or whatever. I hate that. You know, that will absolutely take immersion away. Um, but sometimes your situation can also be. Uh, I run a lot of games at cons, and. Depending on the circumstance, that can be really, uh, I, I tend to run Call of Cthulhu conventions and then it becomes very difficult to build immersion when, you know, people are yelling or the people next to the table next to you are, are laughing. That's one of the reasons why I'm kind of big on the story providing the immersion because if I have to like play music or depend on a atmosphere or that sort of thing, it's very difficult to do that depending on if I'm able to. Uh, I mean, it's great otherwise if you can, but um, a lot of my circumstances don't provide for it. But yeah, anything that provides, I mean, you know, if the TV's on or, uh, you know, or sometimes um, also, like, if you got a player who is just not involved and, or, and for some reason doesn't want to be involved, then that's a big dysfunction as well. So you've all, I noticed, as I asked about kind of common GM mistakes, you all played into the kind of the side of what everybody can do and what players can do. Uh, and Devin, you mentioned uh, metagaming as well. Can you just quickly define metagaming for everyone? Because uh, some folks may not have heard of that term. And sure. And maybe sure. thoughts on how that and player experience come in for different types of games. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, so metagaming is when the knowledge of the player begins to bleed into the knowledge of the character. So a good example of that would be if the, the GM is describing this monster and he's not called it what it is, he's just describing what it looks like, and then you immediately bolt upright and say, oh, 
I know what that is. That's a Koatoa. They have this much armor class, this much health, and they deal this much damage. And, and what you're doing at that point is you're metagaming because the, the, your player knowledge is now causing problems with everybody kind of getting into the story and getting into the world. And you're pulling them out and making it more into a, a tabletop board game and less of a, of a um, story being told with various people. Uh, and there is a certain level of player experience involved with that. You're going to have some players who are very new and they just get excited and you know they, they're just excited that they're fighting this thing or that they're seeing this place or that they found this item that they know about, they've read about it, and they can't quite contain that. And you know that's okay. And then you also have uh, players who maybe just don't quite understand the, the nuances of metagaming and things like that. And then more experienced players will generally be able to keep that side of them a little more reserved, and they'll be able to uh, keep things more uh, on track with what's happening in the world. Uh, but it's not always the case, and it does depend on what kind of players you want. Sometimes you can get players which will, at the start of the game, just immediately zone into their character and they generally will not leave it until the end of the game. And other times you'll have people flip-flop between themselves and their characters. And other times you'll have people who barely ever get into character and they really only just kind of say in third person what their character does. And they don't really speak as their character. And, and all of that is fine. That's however you want to do it. Um, but it's important to know that so that you can gauge how much of an immersive setup you want to have. Because if you're going to go with the whole nine yards, but you have a bunch of people who mostly stay out of character and just occasionally uh, go on about what they're doing, then, you know, maybe that's not the group to do all that work for. But at the same time, if that's what you want to do, I say go for it. Awesome. And uh, Michelle or Josh, do you have uh, anything to comment on kind of the metagaming and player experience and how that plays into it? It's, it's challenging for a player to avoid metagaming. I get it. I think the best way to do it is, is just informing your players that this isn't a video game. Um, and, you know, looking at this, the idea of it as a video game is, is not the best to build immersions. So um, try to put yourself in your character's perspective. That's the only thing I would try to do. But I would agree that, generally speaking, metagaming is one of the worst things to, to build immersion. It's not. It's not great, unless, of course, you want to play it like a video game, in which case, you know, maybe immersion isn't the thing, so. Well, so for me, um, one of the things I like, just as far, I've had a lot of people who are very experienced, and of course, um, metagaming is, is a bit of an issue, whether overt or covert. Um, I play, as a lot of people know, I play a lot of Call of Cthulhu, and Almost none of my uh, adventures are ever out of the box. So if you think you know what you're looking at, you probably don't, which is a good way to stop that sort of metagaming. Um, but it really depends on... You know, I think I agree with um, what was said before on trying to mitigate metagaming. Uh, most experienced players aren't usually an issue, but sometimes sometimes they are. Okay. And what about what about the flip side of that? Just to just kind of take the, the two parter from Alpha here. What is there like? Is there a way to you know RP too much? Is there a way to be too into it? And if so, how do you manage or moderate or deal with that? Uh, we'll toss it back to Michelle to start. Ever ever go to a vampire lark? 
Um, anyway, no, so, uh, yes, there is, of course, a way to, I mean, you can overdo anything. I personally am very fond of role-playing. I'm very fond of having fairly heavy role-playing. Um, I like it when people are invested in their character, and I like it when they are, um, you know, deeply into their, how the character would behave and how the character, everyone knows I'm kind of a realism junkie as far as games are concerned. So I'm very fond of people who take a lot of, um, pay a lot of attention to how their character would behave, uh, the role-playing aspect of it, uh, you know, adding stuff. Research is always kind of a fun, um, and I tend to research my characters to a almost ridiculous degree. Um, and I think I kind of appreciate that in players, but you can overdo anything. I think role-playing though is one of those things that I think is, you know, more commonly underplayed than overplayed. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree. It's more often underplayed than overplayed for sure. Anything, uh, Devin, to, to add to that? Um, I don't think you can ever overdo it. Um, I think it just depends on what gels best with the group. Um, one of the problems that can arise from doing a lot of role play is that the pacing tends to slow down, which is fine, but some players uh, like to occasionally have action. Other players are really interested in political intrigue or uh, character interactions. And when you have both of those types of players in the same group, you can run into some problems where they've been sitting in a tavern talking to people for three hours and the <laughs> barbarian really just wants to hit something and then sometimes you can have a cool interaction because of that but other times it can just completely derail what's been happening because someone is, is getting bored they're not able to play the character that they built because the character they built is built for something that's not what's happening so i think finding that balance between the group that you have is what's important rather than specifically are you doing too much or too little it's, it's more of what do I need to do uh, for this group? Okay. Thanks for uh, all the questions, folks. Uh, this, is, this is really good. Um, so we've covered kind of a bit of the why and a bit of the what. Um, you know, what is immersion? Why? Why do you uh, include immersion? Things like that. What about uh, tools? How, what? How? What do you actually use to develop immersion when you're when you're playing? And how quickly do you introduce them? Is it like first session all out? Do you kind of slowly ramp it up? What's your What's your approach? Well, let's start with Josh on this one. All right, so this is sort of what I've been looking for, and I, I really like this. And I, in all of these tools, again, except for me, I always sort of use music in some means, but I use it on a low level, generally speaking. All of these tools are something to use in moderation because it should be something special. Um, but I'm going to go through maybe all five senses and what I thought was kind of neat. So I'll start with scent. Um, weird thing to include as part of an RPG, one would think. There are companies that actually do this. I found this at Gen Con a few years ago. Companies that actually do things where you can burn candles or they have these beads which have certain scents. And the scents can be like moldy crypt or like uh, tavern bread or like fields of battle and that sort of thing. So some of the ones I linked at in the chat are like adventure scents, cloud fish games, or trip candles. Um, and you can have those and they can really like sort of build that up now that is a lot the one thing i noticed in having doing that as a gm is like 
you can't just like use it. You can stop, but scent lingers. So like if you're trying to flip between different scenes and opening different things, it's just more to kind of fool around with. So yes, that's a bit of a weird one, but it's there. Uh, in terms of touch, um, handouts. There's great prop handouts. Like for example, the HP uh, Lovecraft Society made amazing, fantastic gamer props for Master Nair Lafitep, the campaign. Uh, and things like campaign coins, where you can have physical coins to pass it to your characters so they can kind of have them in their hand. Um, sound, uh, um, there's amazing things. There's not, Some of these are paid, but I'll start with the unpaid one, like tabletopaudio.com uh, has uh, audio that can sort of just play background vibes. There's also an ambient mixer. Uh, but the one that I thought was really good was Sirenscape. They have so many, so, so, so many like things. And you can like layer things in. You can like cast a fireball as part of it just by clicking a button, lowering things. Um, it is the most handy thing. Of course, it's not free. Um, then you have like other RPGs that actually like come even like more basic, like more broad. Uh, um, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Ultraviolet Grasslands. They all like even have soundtracks in the beginning of the book of like, this is the music we were listening to when you write it. And if you want to really get in the head and the spirit of the game, listen to those. Now, obviously, I'm a metal guy, so like a lot of that's metal. I'm sure there's other ones, but those ones stand out to me. Um, when you're talking about sight, obviously, handouts again, but I have linked to a 10 Candles YouTube game where the use of light just like really builds to that game. And I don't want to take up too much of everybody's time, but taste, like taste is another weird one. But for example, why don't you make cocktails that are sort of like themed or like food trays for your players and that sort of thing, um, like tavern handout. Um, one thing I was doing Master Nair Lathotep before the um, pandemic, and what I kind of wanted to do is it has a bunch of different chapters all over the world, and I'd want to do like a handout or, or like a, a tray of food for my players or like appetizers from each culture. So you could just sort of like hand that out and be like, here's an Egyptian tray of food or Peruvian or or whatever, right? So, like, you can really go above and beyond and do anything at cool. Again, moderation. You're going to burn yourself out fast if you don't. All right, great. Let's uh, switch to Devin next. Um, I, I definitely want to capitalize on the whole burning out thing. Um, that is very real. Uh, you do need to keep an eye on that because if you're like me, you just start spending a ton of time on it and bit off more than you can chew and you decided that making an actual book for the book they find when they only really need two pages of information was probably not a smart idea uh that being said i'm a big fan of doing music as well uh i spend a lot of time listening to different types of tracks trying to find stuff that i think will fit very thematically for what's going to happen but i will also say that that's a lot easier to do nowadays when we're we have more control over what's happening online in person that's a little trickier you need to have equipment for that if you're in a certain area where there isn't a lot of soundproofing then you're going to be having a lot of trouble with that so that that's kind of a, a hit and miss that depends on your situation but it can really help set the mood and for me uh just helping me get into my headspace and, and what's going on and what's happening and where are we that really helps uh, even just having sound effects. Like what I like to do is take music, take sound effects and ambiance, and then combine them together and, and kind of create tracks with music and ambiance for different sections and areas. 
Uh, I used to do it for combat too, but I found that that would get very repetitive very quickly. So I stopped doing that mostly, um, unless it's a really thematic fight. There's also um, something to be said for character portraits for NPCs. Uh, this is one of the ones that you can really hang yourself with if you're not careful, because if you do it too sparingly, then as soon as they meet somebody new and you say, here's what they look like, and you show them a portrait, then they're immediately going to assume that that character is very important. But if you do it for every character they meet, you're going to end up with this giant stack of portraits that you have to deal with that a lot. So there, there's a certain degree of, of care to have with that. Uh, maybe worthwhile to either hold off on them or if you're okay with them knowing that this is an important character, kind of get that out of the way right off the bat. Um, I also like to do uh, character voices. Uh, that really helps me a lot. It, it, I, I end up in a lot of situations where two of my NPCs are talking to each other and having different voices really helps that. Uh, it helps keep things quicker and I don't have to keep mentioning which one's which. Body language is good for that too. Um, and handouts, I, I think that when they find, for example, a note or a letter or a journal entry, it's really nice to be able to actually hand that to the player who found it and give them something to read. Uh, because a lot of times I find when you are, if you're just reading it out, they forget a lot of the key information in there and they ask you to read it over and over and over again. So if you just have something to give to the players, it saves you a lot of trouble doing that. And it also gives a, gives them something to talk about and to physically hold on to for next session when they come back. Then they can reread it and say, yes, I remember this was that. And it can be a lot of fun to write those because you can, you can really get in there. And Especially if you're doing something like Call of Cthulhu, there's nothing better than finding a journal entry written by someone who's absolutely terrified and being able to write it in ways that just reading it makes you terrified. Uh, that's a lot of fun. That's really something you can only get from the proper handout. There's a reason why they do that type of thing in horror games too, like video games, like Dead Space. You find like last wills or like uh, messages to family and stuff, and that really just builds into it. It really helps to build up a, a big bad too. If you if you have someone writing a letter to them, and you, you like, let's say you just fought some boss and he was this really very very much a thug. And then you're looking through all of his notes and they're all like just scribbles and scrawls. Then you find one that's being sent to the overlord and it's very articulately well-written, lots of very good grammar. Uh, and uh, it's very different from what you'd expect that kind of person to write. It instantly kind of gives you an idea of just how much respect and fear they have for this overlord. And it helps to build them up as a villain. And uh, Michelle, you want to close it up for us? Sure. Uh, well, so bear with me. I've just got a few points I was jotting down here. Uh, I am a big fan of handouts, and that I agree um, with the Lovecraft Society and a number of sites and cultures who have fantastic handouts. It's they're really good, and some of the research that goes into it is is great. I'm not hugely uh, big on music, largely because I find that um, my taste in music might not be other people's taste in music, so. Uh, if you got someone who really likes the heavy metal and I like ABBA, um, it's not necessarily as immersive to me as it would be to someone else. Um, I'm not an expert on that, though, because, again, I played a long time, and a lot of that was, you know, music was more difficult to obtain than 
play on demand as it is now. Um, I'm really big on, again, I'm going to sort of cover the, the thing on what I was saying about uh, what I think about researching and getting the details right, because I think it's a biggie and that goes with the handouts as well. I'm just going to give an example. This was many decades ago. We're playing um, Champions. And the, the, the DM who was uh, playing actually went and got the actual... We were going to have a fight inside the Parliament building in Ottawa. And he actually got the actual plans for the Parliament building. More than that, he actually took all of us and we all went on a walkthrough of the Parliament building. Because they do, they do tours. We did a tour. What was cool is when we did the actual fight, we didn't know that that was coming up. We just said, hey, let's do this. It was fun. And we, you could see it. You could see it happening because you're there going. <laughs> um, you could almost visualize where you are, where you, what your character, I mean, I, my character actually crashed through the, the, the ceiling in the central cupola of the, uh, uh, um, I mean, I can still see it to this day. So I think that things like that, like the research, um, everyone knows I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. H.P. Lovecraft was a remarkable antiquarian. That's one of the things he did was he would incorporate real history, real uh, um, antiquarian knowledge into a lot of his um, a lot of his stories. So you could actually go and visit the place that he's describing and you actually see it. So, so it's a real place. But again... To me, those kinds of details make it come out, pop out, make it come alive. But and again, I, I agree with a lot of everything else that people were saying. Um, the only thing I'm again, I'm not huge on music, um, but I could definitely see how it would set the mood. I've never really done candles. That's not necessarily a bad idea, but I've never done it. Um, and as far as taste, I, I don't think I've ever served food. But then again, I. Don't cook, and my idea of good food is KD. So, all right. So, uh, on on uh, the note of prep dinner, uh, what is the worst idea or most <laughs> poorly executed attempt at creating immersion that you've seen at a table? Let's start with Devin. Uh, oh boy. Um... Well, there is there is such a thing as um, too much, too quick. Uh, you know, an important thing about immersion is to let it grow naturally and organically through the, the through the play, through the story and the and the game, not to just have a giant info dump at every turn. Um, that's that's like reading a Tolkien book. Uh, you know, you look at the castle where, and you go on and on and on and on and on going into detail about like the last three owners of the castle and, 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 and that's great. And that's, that's awesome that you spent all that time doing all that. This is not the time to do that. You need to kind of give us little hints and, and, and little things and breadcrumbs and let us kind of find our way in there. Because if we're sitting here, as you're explaining all of the stuff, we're, we're never going to be able to actually do anything. And, uh, that's not something that I think is the worst, but it's one that tends to be a little more common than you think. Okay, and let's uh, do Michelle and Joshua on deck. 
Okay, so for me, I think a lot of it has to do with when the sto- story stops making sense, or it's, um, you know, like, oh, you're doing something, but then, you know, it's almost like a dream where the, the, you know, the rules are no longer, you know, it, it doesn't make linear sense. Or there's even little details will throw me off. A good example is we had, um, this was a game like quite a long time ago, we had a, a DM who had the party, who attacked the party at night, but are familiar with owls, at least mine and another person, we had owl familiars, but he was like, oh, well, they must be asleep. I'm like, owls don't sleep at night. It just actually drove me crazy, and quite frankly, that just took me right out of the immersion. Like when, I'm a fairly detail-oriented, I guess, and when you do something like that, it just, just sort of takes away my enjoyment of the game. All right, and Josh? So, not for me so as a GM, but for me as a player, I have one of the one of the experiences that really stood out to me was I had a GM who um, was a fantastic role player, um, but again, he just didn't get the, the pacing so much. Um, and I guess what, where it really fell flat for me was it just... The pacing, it would be an entire night of gaming and, and we'd sit back, I'd sit back at the end of the game and be like, what exactly, like nothing happened in that session. And what it was, it was him just monologuing between NPCs. And then whenever players would get involved, the DM would like just, like every NPC just seemed to be like fighting back or just being difficult for the sake of being difficult. So it was just like, it was almost like a series of monologues and conversations between NPCs and just nothing ever went anywhere but like he was very passionate about it he was doing it well but it was just it was just like we were watching a one-man show so um, that really took it out but again I'm gonna agree with with uh, Devin too um, set, like let your players buy into the world before you start giving them info dumps um, if you're a level one character and it's your first level inquisitor um, you have no stake in that world. Like, let them be invested. Let them learn some NPCs and then start to filter things in. Trickle, trickle, trickle. Really, it's one of those things you want to... It's. I would say building immersion is a finesse tool. It's not something that you, you do too much of um, too fast. You want to be sure that you're finessing it and working in it naturally. So I guess to, to play with that idea of kind of the flow of the game and making sure that the, the GM isn't, isn't monologuing, which we all know is, you know, the worst thing a villain can do from Incredibles. Um, what about breaks kind of either within the session or between sessions? Like, do you get going again with something immersive? Do you call people back to the table with something immersive? Or is it something that you wait until everybody's kind of in it before you get that going? Let's start with uh, Michelle on this one and Devin around that. Usually, again, as I mostly tend to use the story as the mechanism for the main mechanism for immersion, I think it builds. Um, you should build immersion. I think it's very difficult to go from I just came out of my car and you know um, whatever else I'm doing to oh wow I'm in a fantasy world. A lot of it has to do, I think, also with I tend to agree with. Um, um, the oversharing part, I think it's really useful to keep the knowledge of the world to what the characters directly experience. 
like in 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 a movie, one of the worst things is you know when the uh, when you have is it exposition man, you know the guy that explains everything. Characters shouldn't necessarily understand everything; they should experience it. But the more they experience it, and the more detail you have it, to me, it brings that immersion as it goes. I I don't think well. I mean, I suppose a better DM than myself can do it right away, but I'm I'm dubious as to that it can be done. You know, off the branch. And Devin, and then uh, we'll go to Josh after you. Breaks can can be good uh, when I I think they're you, you want to do them tactfully. You want to have a good place for a break to occur. Uh, the middle of an intense sequence can work if you leave it on like a cliffhanger, uh, or if they've just they're just winding down from something and maybe they're having a rest or if they're going to sleep for the night or something like that. Uh, they're having some some downtime. That's the, I find that that's if you're going to take a break, you should try to do it around those times because if you just kind of in the if you just like oh it's been two and a half hours let's have our break, but there's something really intense going on that's going to immediately destroy any level of immersion that you had. So try not to have like a hard rule about when the break is. Just try to find a, a place that naturally fits within narrative. Um, and try to keep them reasonably short, like five minutes, five to ten minutes, uh, enough time for people to get up, uh, get, get refresh of drink, get some snacks, use the bathroom, whatever they need to do, uh, and then they can come right back down and, and get right back into it. Uh, in terms of calling them back, I personally don't do that because uh, a lot of times they're either alone or um, they're doing their downtime, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I can definitely see where in certain situations you could definitely do something like that. All right. And Josh, what do you think? Yeah, so breaks, uh, I think Devin hit it right on the head. I, I like to use breaks for once in a while. Um, even in the middle of something super intense, uh, um, not necessarily breaking that, but just like sometimes things can get like really, really intense. And it's just nice to just like step back. And just be like, because like oftentimes, sometimes in, in some of my games, like it's so tense that you're, you're even stressing your muscles and stuff like that. It depends, right? So like sometimes it's just good to step back, take a breather, come back in five, and then you can get right back into it. So my trick with that is to kind of say, all right, we're going to take the five, come back, and then I just kind of like bring it back down, same tone of voice, do a quick summary, and jump right back in. Um, one of the things, though, is, yes, yeah, scheduling breaks I don't think is great. I think my favorite thing to do is take a break, even in an intense part, right when somebody takes a role, like it could be that critical shot that kills whatever, the big bad. And I'll say, you rolled what? They'll come up and say, like, whatever the number is. And I say, and we're going to take a break. And then I'll just leave it hanging for those five minutes and, like, set the simmering and stewing on that for the five minutes and then we come back and just kind of go from there uh that's sort of one of my tricks that i like to do that's great i like that and i think i mean so on the on the theme of kind of breaks and, and even kind of between sessions and pulling them back in um does anybody use that to actually so like do you use some of your immersion tools as you're planning as you're creating as you're writing the story um, and do you engage with the players between sessions in any way, in an immersive way, potentially? Uh, let's start with Devin on this one. 
I mean, you, if you want to take a gander down at the Murderous Shadows downtime uh, <laughs> channels on the Discord, you can see what I like to call my absolute chaos hell, where players have decided to basically write a novel, um, which is great. So, yes, uh, interactivity between sessions can be really good. Uh, if you have really uh, roleplay-heavy players, I, I, I find it's a really useful tool to help keep the pacing of your game. Because if you do everything in your sessions, then a lot of times you can get caught down in, in, in all these little tiny things that are happening and uh, character moments and, and things tend to come to a screeching halt. So if you have somewhere uh, that you can do that out of game in a, uh, in a chat group or a forum or something, then you can get a lot of character de- uh, interactions and uh, moments, things like characters receiving visions or solo moments with various characters that's a good place to do all that because then you're not dragging down the rest of the game when you're doing that and uh, you can still get those moments uh so that's something that i've started to do a lot of and it's really helped to keep everything going a lot smoother in terms of uh using the stuff while i am preparing absolutely a lot of the times uh, when i'm making my my music and um, sound effect kind of backdrops i'll have those playing on loop in the background while i'm writing stuff uh and if you have if i have handouts for visual images like this is what this room looks like this is what this area looks like then i uh, will have a lot of those sort of on a second screen and that's kind of going to be my inspiration board to kind of be able to okay well how do i want to describe this look at the picture yeah that's right and do that kind of thing and if i have portraits of characters or other things i do that as well so having that stuff on hand can be really handy to help you get into your, your mood and get into the groove of just getting this stuff sorted out. Even if you're not really writing or preparing a whole lot, even if you're just thinking about it, making brief notes, it can still really help keep your head in that area. That's great. That's great. Um, I want to hear uh, from Josh, and then we'll go to uh, Michelle on this one. Yeah, so I often will do this. Um, speaking to players between games, I'm going to point out Alex, who is basically actually asked him last week and said like i think you should just run this game because you're giving me so much here <laughs> so it's good i mean i mean that in a, in a very positive way it's great so i like to work with people i do all the background story stuff in the background being like hey how is this going what would you think about this and and so on and so forth so i've worked with a lot of my players between sessions and again i think it's one of those things you want to do um to keep the flow going i think that's extremely important so you'll definitely want to do that um yeah, and then in terms of, you know, things to get my mind into the idea of uh, um, a game, for sure. Like, example, I was running a Western game a month ago, and I, I just watched Westerns for, like, three weeks. There's nothing but Westerns to get my head around it, just to kind of hit the tropes and that sort of thing. For me, it's music. There are so, so many, um, <laughs> there's so many, like, for me... There's so many things that I, I just love about it. So I'm really into games that are sort of like designed with an aesthetic in them now. So re- most recently, I've really been into Ultraviolet Grasslands, which is like into like, uh, like it's sort of designed around sort of psychedelic stoner metal kind of stuff. So I've been like listening to a lot of like bands and that sort of thing in that genre or like, like, I don't know, some Blue Oyster Cult or like Bong Ripper or Sleep and stuff like that. And just like, I get my mind in that mindset of like, this is what the game should be. So when I go into it, I can kind of like be in that mindset of, uh, 
um, of where it should be. And then if I'm in that mindset, I find often it transfers over to other people. Um, I also will listen to a lot of like jazz or big band and that sort of thing when, um, when I'm playing Call of Cthulhu, um, just to kind of get in that vibe of that era. And it just like, for me, music is very, a big part of my life and a big deal. So I really like to do that. It helps me just kind of, you know, course correct for where I want to be. Okay, perfect. And uh, Michelle, I'd love to hear from you specifically because you keep mentioning the research side. How much of that is happening out of session versus in session? Actually, I'm, I'm somewhat both. So I do agree with the idea of it's great to have interaction between games. Uh, it's actually fun. I actually ran a game at one point that was literally mostly interaction between games. Uh, everyone basically played a character who was the ruler of a country and it was all the role playing between, but it was the interaction between. It was sort of continuous. There was no like, you know, sit down. But anyway, um, the research behind, I've had a lot of my players, uh, particularly was in the, the Toronto area who were very deep into, um, researching their characters. I'll give you an example. Probably one of the best players other than Amano Crystal, but probably one of the best players I've ever had. Was a guy named Tony. Tony, we were playing cyberpunk, and Tony was playing a nihilist rocker uh, who had been sold for food as a slave in the streets of Germany. But he actually wrote all the songs and all the music for his character. I still have them, and they were really good. Uh, he researched his character, you know, down to an nth degree, and I was very impressed. And it, that was really fun. We you know, looked at the songs, we looked at the lyrics, we, it provided, because the, the, the group was basically based around this sort of rocker, rocker group, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, I do the same thing when I'm playing, my characters tend to be, uh, almost insanely detailed. I had a character who, um, it was a vampire game, but I had a character who had a truck and actually designed the truck, I actually did a full 3D design of everything that was in there and the whole, I researched it to a almost ridiculous degree because I enjoy doing that sort of thing. But um, I think that in between games, it helps because then the character or the players are more invested in their characters. They're more interested in the game. They're more involved in the game. And I think that's always good. Great. Great. That's, that's, that's excellent. Okay. Um, and this plays in nicely to uh, kind of the last string of things that I want to talk about here. Um, so in our current situation, uh, basically everything has had to move to the virtual world. Um, and something like Theater of the Mind or a more kind of roleplay heavy game, something like that is easier to uh, immerse, I think, and feel free to disagree with me on that. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on what you've all had to change when we moved to virtual and um, how you might do that for something really uh, kind of crunchier that is that has a lot of um, combat or is usually based on minis moving on a board and things like that. Let's start with let's start with Michelle on this one. Well, I ever since the uh, the plague, of course, I moved online. I've actually moved mostly to roll twenty, so I'm running a regular game on roll twenty. 
and I'm looking to join with you. Um, the so Rule Twenty gives you a, a platform, particularly for Airbnb, so particularly for being able to see things. And I'm actually starting to appreciate. I'm much more theater of the mind kind of person than I am, uh, you know, maps and and figure figurines and that sort of thing. I was never really. I find that um, I don't want to treat the game like a video game. I want to treat it like a, like it was real. Again, I'm a big fan of realism, so I um, I think that people like, for example, you know, if there's a wall there, if you want to say, oh well, I'm going to go through the wall. If you can, that's cool because you know that's being improvising. However, um, I um, it's easier to do that with theater of the mind than it is with you know, static setup. But that that said. Um, I've been finding that Roll20 has a lot of really cool tools for uh, showing what people are seeing, what they're experiencing, uh, what they're set up. I don't, I'm not using it as extensively as a lot of other people might, I suppose, but um, I, I am enjoying the, uh, the, uh, the experience. Okay, great. Let's go with uh, Josh next, and then Devin, you're up. Yeah, so building immersion is a little, well, I'm not going to say it's a little harder, it's definitely harder. So a lot of the tools I had designed, or, or that I had mentioned previously, are a little bit harder to uh, incorporate into a digital format. Um, music is the one that obviously stands out. Um, so really, this is like a stress test of your ability to storytell. Uh, to be straight, straightforward. Um, now, I got to admit that I'm not the most familiar with many games that are um, not theater of the mind. I'm going to agree with Michelle on that. That theater of the mind, I think, um, really is much better for building immersion. Um, but I'm speaking mostly from a place of ignorance. I did play a lot. I do play a lot of Pathfinder and past tense did. Um, one thing I got to be honest, and it's sort of just part of the game. As soon as you start playing on a mini board, I find it just you could be the best storyteller in the world, and then all of a sudden he generates down to tactical chrono trigger combat, and it, there's that breaks immersion straight up. I, I can't even think of a time uh, um, in a path. This is so bad, but like I can't even think of a time in like a Pathfinder D and D game when I've been like as invested in characters and the storyline as I have been in most systems. I just I got to be honest and, and disagree with me if you want, but I just don't think the system lends itself very well to storytelling. Uh, as well as others do, just because you have to like break yourself down into that tactical combat, and, and it just really pulls for me. It really pulls me away from that. So, um, and it's just a, that's just a personal experience thing for me. But yeah, um, the difference between like the Call of Cthulhu game, a Ten Candles game, uh, Apocalypse World game, um, being involved with the characters and being invested in the story, just it, the D&D &D and Pathfinder don't hold a candle to that, in my opinion. Right. It, sorry, can I uh, throw this up again? Okay. I'm, I'm going to agree with him in that, like I said, I'm playing D&D &D, uh, 5e with uh, Roll20, and I think the uh, Roll20 is useful for that. But if I was doing uh, Call of Cthulhu or something somewhat different, I'd probably be a great deal more theater of the mind than... The maps, so I tend to agree with them there. All right, and Devin, yeah, yeah, 
Uh, I, I agree. Uh, music has definitely become much easier to do. Uh, I've rather enjoyed that and playing around with that. We've done some cool things like um, I've experimented with different ideas, like in initiative, whenever it's a player's turn, I play like a quick five second thing for their theme song, something that they, they chose to have as their character's theme song. Uh, kind of, kind of little, little things to play around when they do certain abilities. I have like certain, uh, music cues to throw in for them. Again, things that we've talked about that they've decided, which is pretty, pretty neat to be, to be able to do. Uh, and it really kind of helps the player, uh, feel a little more of a connection to what's happening with their character and everything. Um, aside from that, it's, it's in a way it's easier, but it's also more difficult because it's easier to, type everything up to draw everything up in Photoshop and, and type it all up and, and copy the pictures, download things and put them all into roll 20 and display them that way rather than to have to print them out, cut them out, form them into things uh, physically. But it does, it's not quite the same. It doesn't feel quite the same as having something physically in your hands. Uh, so there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, of a double edge to it. Um, it, it is easier to prepare things in a way as well because I, I like to do a lot of research when I'm doing my stuff too. Like I, One of the things I think really helps with immersion is if you try to base it in some level of precedent. So if you're doing something in like a pseudo-medieval world, if you actually do research on medieval outfits and clothing and, and armor and weapons and why were they invented and how were they used and why do they look like that? Why do? Because you'd be surprised what kind of stuff you can learn that can really help to to add that element of realism to your game. Which the amount of immersion that having something that just makes perfect sense and is grounded in a reality that we live in is second to none. Like that's that's as far as I'm concerned, that's the best surefire way to really make your world feel like it's alive and breathing. Um, and being able to literally pull something up on Google in about 10 seconds to double check that or to have multiple tabs bookmarked and ready to go. That's really useful. And while you can do that at a table with a laptop or something, if you're like me and you have multiple screens, it, it's just, it, you can't compare to that. So there is, there is a level of, of uh, enjoyment that can come from having things so easily accessible and so easy to prepare. But I really do miss being able to just be there in person, have things physically there and to, to really gel off of everybody else and read the room and use body language and things like that. Awesome. And just a quick one for uh, Devin and or Josh, how do you actually do your sound? There is a question about kind of where, where is the level where you're actually hindering the player's concentration as opposed to helping? Uh, you got to find the right balance of sound. So, um, if it's too loud, it's distracting and it gets in the way. If it's too quiet, you might as well not have it. So you need to try and do things, the same things that movies and video games do where music's there if you want to focus on it, but it should really just be kind of a background thing that they're not even... It's kind of ironic. You're going to spend a lot... I spent a lot of time the levels and making sure everything blends and very good. There's nothing jarring. And then I have it crank down so that it's just there in the background and most of the time people don't listen to it. But I have done some interesting things like I have found them find uh, some sheet music in a dungeon and when they played it, a thing happened. And later on, they heard someone humming that same sound and they thought that was interesting. And then when they were doing a certain fight, I had the music that was in that sheet music 
playing in the background and some people picked up on it. So things like that can be pretty neat, but you don't want it to be in a way that it is, you don't want to make it so that they are, they have to hear it. It should be something that is there in the background that their subconscious is listening to and that from there they can kind of infer things. It's a soundtrack. It's, it's, it's not part of the environment. Sound effects, I think you can, you can crank up a bit more because that's to help build the immersion and, and birds chirping or wind blowing in the breeze is a much less distracting because that's a normal type of sound that we deal with every day, uh, whereas we don't normally have music playing. So finding the right thing to do there. In terms of what I do is I, I combine everything into one track and I'm constantly playing with the levels. And I've been doing it for so long that I've kind of just gotten the hang of what is the what is appropriate. Uh, but another way you could do it is have two separate levels, one for music, one for sound effects, and you can kind of tweak them, turn them off, and change them up as you need to. And that goes for Sirenscape, where you can do individual levels for different things. Like, each individual thing, it's, it's like a, a track tool. So each individual thing, you can set the different levels. Of course, this is better for non-pandemic gaming. <laughs> um, one thing about... Plots. There's some music plots and that sort of thing that are available on Discord. Uh, they always come in hot. It always blows everybody's eardrums out the first time. But the nice thing about Discord is that you can each individual person can adjust their own level. What they want, it could be zero, it could be 100, whatever you want. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the advantage of Sirenscape is that you can bring the levels as much as you want. You can have really loud sound effects or really subtle music and then... Um, and yeah, they use that type of thing in video games all the time too, like that Devin had said, where, uh, you know, you might hear like a track or something like that, and that always sort of indicates danger and that sort of thing. Like maybe they don't notice it the first time, but it's sort of in the background, and every time something bad's going to happen, this track comes on. But that's a lot for a GM. They've already got a lot on their plate. But if you can do it, and you can do it right, it really is next level. Great. Okay. Uh, we're almost at time. I'm just going to do a quick one here, and I want to hear your your kind of rapid responses here. Um, when when you're do when you're using NPCs, uh, how deep is too deep? How how far do you go? Give me like your 30 seconds. Where's the where's the limit? Uh, let's start with Michelle. Can you repeat the question? Because I wasn't very clear. Sorry. So so. Um, the question is about kind of quality over quantity for NPCs. So how how deep do you make your NPCs? How how detailed do they get, and what is kind of too too deep? Well, I normally have a world. Like I, I normally run a world. Like for D and D, I run a whole world. Um, so I'm not going to detail every single person. But I do have stock characters that are pretty deep uh, deeply detailed, um, and uh, some of the more important characters, of course, are very detailed. Um, when I'm running D and D, I'm running my own world, so I tend to have um, some of the people who are pl who play their characters tend to end up as NPCs, so they're pretty detailed as well. Um, I kind of think it makes a cool co continuity. Um, Great. And uh, Devin, what about yourself? Um, I. Th in you can have if you're having more conversations with yourself than with your players, you have too many NPCs. Okay, that's a good uh, that's a that's good measure. Short and sweet. Josh, the players will tell you the NPCs they care about the most. Have bullet points and invest in the ones that they give a shit about. 
That's great. That's great. I actually, that, that plays into something I always do where I ask my players to summarize what happens in the previous session. And if they don't remember an NPC, they're done. They're gone. Uh, great. So, uh, it's nine o'clock. I want to thank, uh, Michelle and Devin and Josh for, uh, all their, uh, excellent answers and responses today. Uh, and, uh, I want to thank everybody here for coming. Uh, if you're looking for a game on Saturday, I do have a few spots left in my game. Michelle's actually playing in the game. Uh, just a quick 5e one shot. And, uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks.